welcome to the XY Advisor podcast. To join a global community of financial advisors sharing and learning with one another to drive the positive evolution of financial advice, head to xyadvisor.com. Both Zurich and OnePath life insurance offerings deliver the broadest range of offerings in the market with a combined four distinct solutions on offer to better serve all Australians. At Zurich and OnePath, we believe in the value of advice and the professionals who provide it. This means investing in more ways to help your clients and making it easier for you to do business with us. To find out more about how we can help you and your clients, contact your Zurich and OnePath life or Zurich Investments representative today. G'day, Clayton here from XY Advisor, catching up today with Associate Professor of the School of Business in its Western Sydney, correct? That's correct, Western Sydney University. And you are a uh, registered psychologist. That's correct. Yeah, so uh, thank you so much for coming on, Anne. Pleasure, it's an honour to, to be part of this conversation today. Awesome. Um, so we were discussing before we started, we kind of um, it's, it's a big deal, you know, mental health, it's a very big deal. And it's something that has really, I think kind of grabbed the world around the throat, so to speak. Uh, it's, it, we've seen it blow out of proportions. I don't think there would many, be many people who were talking, you know, certainly 20 years ago that we'd see the level of mental health problems that we're seeing today. Um, mm. And, and I'm sure you've got some ideas as to why that's occurred, but I, the, the segment of society that was really caught unawares was the insurance industry. Mm, mm. And the reason is because they have an economic, um, they have an, an economic repercussion to this increase in mental health. And because mm. a lot of people are taking time off work um, a lot of doctors are diagnosing depression, anxiety. Yes. Um, and, and a lot of these times people are uh, getting, you know, insurance payouts in form of ongoing revenue streams like income protection or large upfront sums such as disability insurance. And it's created almost a Frankenstein's monster where um, we've almost set it up to achieve the outcome of great insurance cover, which then pays us a lot of money in the event that life is too difficult. Yes. And that is, you know, it's, it's kind of gone from, uh, in a lot of ways, it's kind of gone from this uh, safety net support in the event you were hit by a bus or, or got cancer. Mm. And now it's this, if I'm the, if I'm the client, I'm looking at a huge payday if I simply can prove that my job is too stressful and then it's two birds, one stone, right? Like I don't have to go to work anymore and I get cash. And so it's a little bit of a Frankenstein's monster. And so the government had to come out and make some changes to insurance across the board um, and sort of largely save the industry. But one of the things that I uh, would like to talk to you about is the idea of advisors being helpful to their clients in the form of giving advice on the prevention of mental health issues because the prevention um, of mental health issues is kind of 
uh, it's almost the best catch-all, right? If you never fall into the issue, you never have to climb out of it. And I'm sure that there's a bunch of things we can jump into. Um, but I guess starting from the top, why do you think mental health is a bigger issue today than it has been in the past? Mm-hmm. Well, um, I guess there are many answers to that question, but um, I think the prevalence of um, mental illness, needless to say, is, is far from ideal, like nationally and internationally. And um, revisiting some stats of, of late, just as a friendly reminder for those who are not aware, um, for instance, in, you know, in Australia, 45% of Australians have experienced a mental disorder in their lifetime. And that's one in, and with one in five Australians aged 16 to 85 years experience a mental illness in any one year. Now, the most common tends to be depression, anxiety, and substance use disorder. And sometimes these co-occur. So why are they so prevalent? Well, compared to previous decades, we now have better assessment methods. And although many people with mental health issues and their loved ones still experience stigma, there's a growing number of people who are accessing mental health um, services as well. And there are growing trends um, as well on demands placed on us. And I think this also exacerbates the rise of mental health issues. We're talking about financial stresses, work-related stresses, family-related stresses, and even the expectations that we place on ourselves. We often, stretch, we often find ourselves being stretched in multiple directions. And I think in this very precarious period of COVID-19, for instance, just when we thought we were busy, we're busier and we're having to transform ourselves to practice our profession online virtually to accommodate the current emergency measures. And often we feel ill-prepared to do this in a timely way. And when we don't feel that we have the resources to do what we're required of us, anxieties can manifest. And although those anxieties may manifest more regularly among those who experience anxiety disorder, for instance, or their mental health issues might become more apparent during these dark periods in life. For those who are at the tipping point, that can push them over, Mm. right? So, for instance, you may have had a, a predisposition for mental health issues, but it was this unforeseen stressor that pushed you over the edge, you know, your drinking patterns might have changed, your sleeping patterns might have changed, your eating patterns may have changed. And these can, if they are unusual for you, these can perhaps give you a heads up that you're not traveling so well. One of the things advisors see as a huge part of their value to their clients. If I was to summarize advice in a sentence, which is always quite difficult, but the way that I see it is uh, to help their clients achieve their experiential, relational, um, and career goals. Mm -hmm. And obviously that's a large part is financial. Mm -hmm. And the other large part is psychological. It's that human touch. It's the, how, how much enjoyment uh, the client is getting out of life because back in the day, financial planning was all very finance, you know, uh, Mm. investment focused, Mm. but now it is, Hey, what do you want out of life? And then we'll help you achieve those milestones in the short term with your cash flow in the long term with your assets Mm. and an advisor worth their salt these days doesn't just want a rich client they want a client that feels fulfilled Mm. as well and it's an interesting situation because although advice has uh, slowly evolved into this 
there hasn't been the infrastructure and mm. the, I guess the, um, the qualified uh, training that comes along with it. And so conversations with people like yourself, I find are really helpful because uh, you can maybe give us some ways to think, perhaps provide a bit of framework. Mm. Um, and so an advisor who wants to help their client avoid, as you said previously, sometimes we can feel a bit overstretched. Mm. Uh, and so there's definitely uh, helping clients avoid that pivotal tipping point that you mentioned. And I think advisors are probably far better positioned in that preventative space Mm. than we are Mm. in that treating and clinician Mm. space purely because the fact we have no idea what we're doing and (laughs) and we shouldn't be touching it. Right. So, but I think the better that we get at that early um, avoiding our clients overstretching and avoiding walking down the path Mm. of mental health issues, what kind of, tips, tricks, tactics, tools, conversation methods, how should an advisor approach a client who is feeling or who we can tell is feeling quite stretched? Mm. How do we uh, give advice and what does that advice look like? I think that's a great question um, for, for a number of reasons, but Although I, you know, needless to say, there's no silver bullet, unfortunately, or, or magic wand, I think compassion and empathy are always great starting points. And I guess what I mean by that is placing yourself in their shoes, if indeed you can, or thinking to yourself, what would you find helpful under their circumstances? What sort of language would you find helpful? What sort of demeanour should I present myself in a way that doesn't trigger defensiveness in the client or be misconstrued as you questioning their competencies and you questioning their capacities. And I think we don't always know, needless to say, but I think starting from a point of compassion can always be a helpful starting point because at least it might widen your blinkers and enable you to to use language that potentially, well, that broaches a potentially sensitive terrain lest we, um, uh, I guess, diminish, compromise the established relationship that we have with a client because that's, I imagine, very difficult to repair once the damage has been done. So akin to, I guess, um, well, managing, you know, mental health issues and and just, I guess, for clarity, as as a registered psychologist, to me, a mental health issue is, is not necessarily a diagnosable mental illness. And I think that we need to be clear about that. So, you know, what I mean by one that's diagnosable, as determined, let's say, by a qualified doctor or by a mental health professional, but it can reflect mental health issues, can reflect natural ebbs and flows in our well-being. Okay, so these are naturally part of life. We all experience different health issues in our life, and similarly, we all experience different mental health issues in our lives as well. And just like we do not always know when we might feel physically unwell, we don't always know when poor mental health might prevail as well. Because this is akin to physical health, there are myriad factors that contribute to our mental health, our genetic predisposition. You know, what occurred while we were in utero, like, you know, maternal infection, for instance, or what occurred during childbirth. I mean, we, we have, very few of us have, 
a memory of what transpired <laughs> during that time, but there could have been some trauma, okay? Wow. Uh, and that certainly can be an ingredient to compromise your well-being in later life. Wow. What occurred in your childhood, okay, like poor nutrition, okay, that can compromise your headspace in the longer term. Um, parental neglect. Um, now, let's think of adolescence. Were you bullied, for instance? Um, or whether other people's behaviours were perceived as bullying, okay? So, and also there's hormonal changes, might I add, to that mix as well. And then what occurred as we get older as well, you know, where we live, do we have ready access to um, nutritional food? Um, what are our relationships like as adults with our parents, with our siblings? Are they strained? What's our workplace like? All of these ingredients shape our well-being and equally they can compromise our mental health. So this is a very broad church and I guess just for clarity, we, we're not necessarily just speaking of the mental illnesses diagnosable yeah. by a, a qualified clinician. I think it can be helpful to clarify, I guess, what we can do to prevent the likelihood of mental health issues arising, okay? So let's think of our physical health because we often think about that more often than our mental health. So how do we keep our physical illness at bay, let's say? So we can ensure that we're eating well, that we're resting well, that we're exercising, that we're maintaining wholesome relationships with others in our personal lives and in our professional lives. And if those relationships are strained, moderating them so they don't do our head in, mm. okay? Knowing when it's getting to the, to the state of frustration and angst, but curbing that, nipping that in the bud, recognising it and managing it, containing it. It's also important that we get to know ourselves better. What works, what does not work. For instance, during this, as I said, you know, this time of, of COVID-19, some of us, including myself, might feel compelled to constantly listen to the news, you know, and keep abreast of the latest developments. How many individuals have the virus? You know, how many have died? What can I do? What can I not do with, you know, can I spend time with my clients? Do I need to avoid them? Is there a cure? Is there a vaccine? You know, but this unremitting exposure to negativity can be detrimental and you fi might find yourself feeling melancholic, feeling hopeless, cognitively paralysed by what you hear. So it can be helpful to think about what is helping you, what is hindering you and how you might optimise your, your well-being, but not only of yourself, but those around you. So, for instance, if you've got, um, if you're living with others, be they children who pick up on these things, you might not have explicitly spoken with them about them, but they, they pick this stuff up. So being mindful of that. How you manage it is obviously up to you, but just to be mindful of the implications associated with your behaviour. And similarly, the discourse that you share with clients. Um, although most of us are impelled to speak negatively of COVID-19, such negative discourse can be reinforcing the negativity. Mm. And negativity begets negativity. And that could indeed be the point of reinforcement that compromises their well-being even further, if that makes sense. So I guess we need to be careful of the words that we craft, how we craft them, and when we share them. So just like negativity begets negativity, positivity can beget positivity. 
So I'm continually inspired by these pockets of brilliance that I'm seeing in the public domain, you know, particularly online. I mean, and the more I look for them, the more I'm inclined to see them and the more I share them with colleagues and with friends, you know, people being artistically creative online, people singing from their balconies in Italy, for instance. And it's just yeah. amazing to, to hear and to see that. Now, I'm not suggesting that we become naively Pollyanna-ish, you know, or becoming ignorantly blissful, but rather it's about redressing the imbalance to optimise our well-being. Wow. So from an advisor's point of view then, considering, as you just mentioned, the multivariate nature of how mental health problems can even come about, from our point of view, the conversations that, that we have with our client are first done in times of high stress, such as COVID, yes. done in a compassionate way, skewed towards the positive. So we're not playing, I guess, and, and, and perhaps this is a better way to think of it, rather than advisors being a part of um, any kind of treatment or preventative plan, perhaps we, we, we're best placed in our role to keep the sunny side of life uh, front and center. Perhaps if there is negative news that we are explaining this in a, in a way that keeps the long-term benefit, the horizon. Yes, the uh, hopefulness. The hopefulness. So we, we skew our conversations, even our emails, even yes. it, it, we're having, we're skewing everything towards the positive um, so that I guess the on the the beget one thing begets the other we uh we we just sort of support the positive things that are in our clients lives and that i think is achievable especially if it's a conscious if it's something that advisors are doing consciously i mm, I, mm. I mean w there, there's a natural inclination to do that because you always want your client to be happy however we probably Occasionally, we need to play the role of sort of a, a bit of an annoying role. It's somewhat of an accountability partner. Some, you don't want, certainly not discipline, but certainly um, someone that plays. Occasionally, you're, you're responsible for having the hard conversation yes. with clients. But I guess uh, probably the good thing to pull out of this is in, a, in times of heightened stress, in times where people are perhaps on the edge, then even though it might fit in well with our timeline of conversation points to have, we should be picking up on this with our client and perhaps pushing any harder conversations to the side and having a maybe more positive. And, and that kind of lets advisors off the hook a little bit as well because the last thing that especially from a professional point of view you don't always want to dive deeply into someone's you know to go deeper into someone's situation than what's necessary and something like this where we're, well, we're just keeping a conversation skewed towards the positive while things are pretty crazy at the moment i I think that's a really, really good piece of advice. In terms of... May I just... And just, oh, to, yeah. and just, I guess, I'm keen to ensure that I'm not misconstrued or misinterpreted as avoiding the elephants in the room because that's certainly not what I'm... And not that I'm suggesting you've implied that. 
Um, but just to reinforce the point, this is not about being ignorantly blissful. It is uh, about having those hard conversations, but sometimes those hard conversations are more palatable when you've got that trusting relationship with someone. With a, like The client knows you. They know that your heart is in a good place and you're having this conversation, your heart, this hard conversation, because you legitimately care for them. And when that conversation is founded on positive discourse, that becomes more easier on the ear for the recipient of that sage advice. Yeah. That, I mean, it makes, it's, it's an easy thing, I think, for advisors to adapt. Um, and, it, and it probably gives some structure and some mm. confirmation of behavior that most advisors are probably doing already, but uh, giving it maybe a little bit more weight to it, which is great. What are some easy suggestions for an advisor to provide to clients if they're finding that their clients are in fact on that stressed out tipping edge? Now, I'm not suggesting we're all going to become uh, hypnotists in our spare time and hold breathing exercises in our in our room, uh, our meeting rooms, but are there, are there some easy things beyond, because the more, the, the more I do this uh, mental health series, it became very clear to me that there is a certain point in time where referring to a psychologist is a great idea. Mm. And that's probably not a conversation that advisors have enough between ourselves is when to hand on to a, a registered psychologist, right? To, to a professional. Um, but is there might be some things before we get to that stage. Yeah. I, and and I, I'd I love to cover that. Completely agree with that. And I think it's about the timing of those conversations. And again, I reinforce the word compassion here and thinking to yourself, if I was in this really difficult situation what advice, not only the content of the advice, but the way it's delivered. But also important to me is I'm always reminded of the adage that sometimes the messenger is as important as the message. So for instance, if you have not yet established that rapport with the client, maybe the advice, the suggestion better offered from another mouthpiece. If indeed the client's well-being is of paramount concern, keen to ensure that it's received by open ears, asking yourself, am I best placed to be offering this advice or is it somebody else if I don't yet have that rapport? But back to your, um, your question about um, ways to become more aware of or ways to um, respond to that, I think in essence it's about being mental health literate. Mental health literacy is about having the knowledge, the understanding and the skills to promote mental health and reduce the impact of mental illness. And this includes enhancing your understanding of mental illness. So you might recognize them not only in yourself, but also in others that you love and care about, including your clients. And just to reinforce your point, this doesn't necessarily mean you doing a, another degree, for instance, to become a, you know, a qualified mental health professional, but akin to first aid skills, developing mm. you know, mental health first aid skills, for which there are courses, by the way, there are established courses on um, mental health first aid, enables you to better help yourself and better help other people that you may be concerned about. And as I said, part of this is about knowing yourself as well. You know, what are the early signs that enable you to readily detect that 
you or someone else might not be traveling so well. Because if it's something affecting you, it may be a telltale sign in other people, not always, but potentially. So during these moments, you're asking yourself, what do you find helpful or conversely unhelpful? And what additional resources might you need? Now, in the first instance, it could be some music. It could be some gentle exercise or engaging in an inspiring conversation, exercising your creative uh, flair through art. So it's about understanding yourself in the hope that that might provide insight as to what might help others as, as well. And so that you might be able to connect with individuals, be they you know, in your personal realm or in your professional realm, your clients, for instance. So I guess it's about creating a toolbox replete with different tools that are needed on different occasions. Some of those can be readily sourced in the public domain. Some of those, you know, require additional assistance, like an expert, for instance. Now, sometimes, you know, suggesting to someone that they engage the services of, you know, a mental health professional is not always well received. Oh, yeah. Okay. So often finding different ways of crafting that suggestion can be helpful. And I'm not suggesting not taking the bull by the horns, but keen to ensure that there's opportunity to continue the dialogue lest a client slams the, the figuratively, figurative door in your face and never re-engages that relationship again. We don't want that to happen. Absolutely. So to err on the side of caution, you know, thinking about safer options, for instance, um, making them aware of um, um, a number of organisations that have some tried and tested, really user-friendly resources in the public domain, uh, a number of which I can provide you, you know, after, after this chat, for instance, but ones that come to mind, I think, organisations like the Black Dog Institute and indeed a number of yeah, not-for-profit organisations, be they Beyond Blue, or say in Australia, myriad other, others that, in addition to having static resources, some of which also offer the opportunity for confidential online chats as well, okay, to touch base with someone in a confidential way from the comfort of their own home. But indeed, if you think a, a chat with a qualified professional can be helpful, perhaps a chat with their GP might be more palatable to, to the individual than, for instance, suggesting a mental health professional because people mm. might be warmer, let's say, given hopeful that they have a, a relationship with a GP and so, you know, their first port of call, they might be uh, open to that advice as opposed to, for instance, engaging the services of a mental health professional and for which they might not have a, a relationship with to date. So that might be a, a softer way, for instance, to, to raise that su suggestion. That's a really good suggestion, Anne. Uh, I like that. I always like these tips and tools because Asking good questions is the meaning of being a good advisor and adding to that list of what questions to ask is always a huge thing that I like to, it's almost like an extra arrow in the quiver, right? So yeah, I like that. It, it, maybe asking someone to see their GP if they're feeling a little bit uh, ill or down, that's actually, it's, it's a nice way of putting it. Um, can, can I just add to that? And again, yeah. there's a, um, a very intertwined relationship between physical and mental health, needless to say. And again, if, it's, um, if you're noticing changes in your client's behaviour, their mood, they seem more anxious. And again, they might not see it in themselves or they may take offence to, to those questions. But mm -hmm. sometimes asking about changes in their diet 
you know, are they eating more or less? Are they looking after themselves? Are they getting exercise, for instance? Are they sleeping well? They are potentially uh, easier questions to answer and ones that I might be willing to answer as opposed to, Anne, are you feeling depressed? Yeah. Yeah. And are you highly strung at the moment? Okay. It's like, where is this coming from? Look, I, you know, I, I'm not yet sure that I want to share that information with you, but something like, are you sleeping well? Well, you know, that seems like an innocuous question. Seems like it can never be sure of anything, but I may be better prepared to respond to that question as opposed to those others. Yeah. That's, I love that as well. Um, that's really good. One of the things you mentioned was a mental health first aid. Yes. Okay. I'm going to admit, I've never heard this before, but oh. I love the concept of it. So can you walk us through what sure. that is? Sure. So um, uh, Professor Tony Jorm, who's um, affiliated with the uh, University of Melbourne, uh, has done seminal work over the years on the concept of mental health literacy, which I spoke of previously. And him, he and his team have developed uh, established courses to develop competencies in mental health first aid. And again, I press the point, this is, well, I guess this is akin to, it is akin to first aid. So just like I don't need to become an AMBO to have first aid skills, this is the same sort of thing, you know. Hmm. So it may be worthwhile and indeed I'm happy to to source and share with you um, information that you might share with them. with listeners afterwards Fantastic. about how they might engage these services. And I know many universities, including Western Sydney U- University, make this course available to staff as well to ensure that they are well prepared to care for themselves and indeed others, including students and colleagues. Wow. That's very important because one of the things we spoke about prior to starting, you know, hitting the record button was to know thyself. To, to, it's, it's almost there's a direct correlation between the more we're exposed to and the more that we consider the concept of mental health, even if we have no intention whatsoever of fully going down that path, we're just going to be in a better position to be able to handle those conversations. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I press the point, compassion, I think, is pivotal here. And again, that um, starting those conversations from a point of positivity, particularly when you're forming that relationship with a client, I'm mindful of this in the context of organizational change and just being always reminded by studies that I read and the research that I do, the water cooler conversations that colleagues have with each other, the bemoaning of organizational reforms and what's happening in the organization, despite the legitimacy of them, they're actually concretizing those thoughts in our head. Some neurological research is suggesting that those well-trodden paths that we have neurologically stymie our ability to be creative, to be innovative, Mm. because the paths, the neural paths are established. We have well-trodden paths and not-so-well-trodden paths. And what we want to do is start engaging the not-so-well-trodden paths. That's the space of creativity and innovation. Now, that's not something that only artists do. Creativity is, is intertwined in all that we do. Mathematicians, wet lab scientists, even financial advisors, okay? What they do, how they do their, how they exercise and perform their craft takes creativity. Knowing what to say, when to say it, how to deliver it, that's a, that's a craft. And doing it innovatively requires you to think what's needed at this point in time. It changes all the time, I imagine. I'm like most professions, okay? So 
particularly when we get ourselves um, stuck in a bit of a, a complicated issue, we don't know how to proceed. It's the times like that where we need to exercise innovative thinking, but by reinforcing and concretizing well-established neural paths, we limit our ability to do that. We're digging our own grave, to put it bluntly. As someone who, uh, as we mentioned at the start, you are associate professor in the business school and also being a registered psychologist, I'm interested to know because the way that you would think about things would be very much from a capitalistic nature, but also from a human nature, which is very financial planner focused, right? That's that's the, the frame in which advisors often think of things. If we think for a moment, there are the main stresses in life are often financial. Is there anything besides help from a financial planner that can help? Or I guess my question is, does exercise, does mindfulness do these, um, do these, I guess, uh, skills that people can learn, does any of it work except for just simply solving the problem? Great question. Great question. In, in a brief response to your question, it comes down to your perception. So, for instance, that the adage of is the glass half full or half empty? Now, I imagine um, you're probably, I mean, always inspired by movies like, you know, Life is Beautiful, where in the darkest moments, you can create your own brilliance. You can create these imaginative experiences. And I guess what I'm trying to say is, despite the, the darkness in life, be they caused by financial stresses, I may not be in a position today to readily address that. But if I don't rethink the way I engage with that problem, I potentially become paralysed and inactive and unable to do anything. So having a number of tools in my toolbox can enable me to ensure that I'm not going to become overwhelmed by this financial issue and that I can make informed decisions and have constructive conversations with my financial advisor or indeed others. I'm hoping that answers your question. So a number of these tools work and a number of these tools don't work. It depends. It's horses for courses. So thinking about physical health, I might take a tablet to manage a migraine or cholesterol, for instance, works for me, doesn't work for you or vice versa. And similarly with these tools in our toolbox. So if indeed, for instance, um, someone was not traveling so well, having a number of those tools in the toolbox. Many of them are free and I'm not necessarily suggesting that they be exorbitant, but at least there's something to try. At least there's hope. At least like, okay, this one didn't work on this occasion, but I still have 99 more. There's still so much hope for me there. And another point I'd, I guess I'd like to make is that even if you have engaged the services or indeed a client has engaged the services of a psychologist backslash counsellor, backslash psychiatrist. They often have a broad brush. You know, people paint, uh, use a broad brush to think that they're all the same. They're not. But um, on that note, if a client um, is dismissing the potential value of a psychologist or a GP or, or what have you, 
saying, for instance, as I've often heard things like, oh, look, I went to one once and it didn't work or, you know, um, the advice was really crap or um, they just sat there going, "Uh uh uh-huh, uh-huh, you know, I was looking for advice. Akin to a, a job interview, I think your very first conversation, and this can be a, a helpful suggestion to clients, for instance, treating the first appointment or indeed the first phone chat like an interview. What do you do? How do you do it? What can I expect when I rock up each week or each, each appointment? When might I expect to see change? And if there is no change within that time frame, What's plan B? Okay. Mm. Because often people rock up to these appointments not really knowing how it's going to unfold or not having some clarity about what to expect and just keep rocking up time and time again going, well, nothing's really changing. Well, there was no shared expectation. But I imagine like good financial advising, there's some planning here. What's our goal and what are the objectives towards that aspiration? And, sim- and similarly thinking about how we access mental health care in a similar way. I, I really like the question, how long is change, how long till change is expected? And what happens if nothing changes? That's a great question. I think even for clients to ask as a financial planner or potentially as, as, as a talking point for advisors to bring up to potential new clients. Uh, I think it's a, a yeah, it's not a conversation for now, but my God, that is a, it's, I'm going to have a think about that process in my mind a little bit more. Um, and I'm not suggesting that, you know, the cl- clinician will, might readily know that, but, yeah. at, least, but at least given <laughs> their, question, right? g- given their experiences in terms of, you know, I've been treating X issue over 20 years, 10 years, and thinking about similar circumstances to your own, we may expect to see change in this period, for instance. You know, it could be different, but let's be generous here. Let's give it an extended period. We should expect to see change within this period. And if we don't, then this is our plan B. These are our, uh, our contingency plans. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a really, uh, that's a project management way to view someone's health. I think that's a really good um, process to have in place for an advisor for our entire service. I think that's actually a really good way to, uh, to give value um, up front to a new client. I, I really like that, Anne. Well, akin to, and just as a, a, an analogy, I guess, it's akin to, um, and I, I use this because I, I'm a practical girl and I find it helpful for, up to, for others, akin to, you know, you rock up to a hairdresser and you get a crap haircut. Seldom do we say, I'm never going to a hairdresser again. Right. We go somewhere else, Right. But more often than not, people who have not had the best experience with a mental health professional paint, you know, use a very broad brush to go, well, they're all like that. Well, not necessarily so. Ask the question and get some shared expectations in the first instance to inform, is, there, is, it, is this a professional relationship you want to pursue? If not, go elsewhere. Awesome. And thank you so much for your time uh, chatting this morning because this is a, it's a very broad topic, but at the same time, it's been really good to chat to you about, you know, prevention, financial planning. Uh, and I really appreciate you coming at psychology from a business point of view. I, that's a very unique insight. So it's been excellent to have you on. Thank, thank you, you for your so time. much. Appreciate it. Cheers. Bye-bye.